Hello, everybody. Good to see all of you. Chapter four of, uh, of the book of James largely is devoted to the theme of worldliness. I have, that's not the term that's actually used in the text, but it fits with this because James will say, as we already studied last week, to be friends with the world is to be an enemy of God. And world, as you remember we discussed last week, is that system, that system that stands opposed to and is rebellion against God led by Satan. That's kind of the way to think about world. So to be friendly with the world is to be an enemy of God. Secondly, James uses the term double-minded. Most expositors think he actually coined that term. It is not found in Attic Greek, uh, classical Greek. So the idea seems to be of being double-minded is you're living your life as a Christian where you have one foot in God's kingdom and one foot in the world. They're trying to live both. And James describes the miserable nature of trying to do that. And so he, he talked about the results of worldliness. And now, this is where we left off last week, verse 7 through verse 10, <clears throat> James, James lays out, if I can follow the metaphor of a sickness, the antidote to worldliness. And if you look at these verses, last week we read all of those verses. I'm not going to read them through again. But in verse 7 through 10, he lays out 10 commands. If you know the Greek language, they're aorist imperatives. I'm sure that I told you that aorist is one of the tenses of Greek language. But aorist imperatives, they're decisive acts that we're supposed to take. And as you know, I hope you know this, an imperative is a command. So the very first two go together. They're like flip sides of the same coin. And the idea, if I can put it this way, is something like this. In your walk with the Lord, if you have the disease of worldliness and you're not as close to God as you used to be, guess who moved? You or the Lord? Well, obviously, the answer to that rhetorical question is you have. So, therefore, the very first thing he says is submit yourselves, therefore, to God. So the first step of the road back to the Lord, the first step of restoring that fellow. This isn't about salvation, men. This isn't about justification, to use the Apostle Paul's words or what James talked about in chapter 2. This is about your relationship with God in that process of sanctification. So my walk with God, if I have stepped out of place, if I've gotten off the track, what do I do? The road back begins, submit yourself to God, therefore. And I, I believe I mentioned this last week. The word submit there is a military term. It, I mean, it was used in the, in the military of that day. It, it, it has the idea of being subordinated to, coming under the authority of. Well, that's, that should not be some new truth to you. It should not be some new truth to the believer, even in, in the time of James. Because here's where the, 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 the term, the lordship of Jesus Christ, comes into play. We are to, this is another part of the New Testament, we are to confess Jesus as Lord. And so if he is Lord, then my only natural response to that is to submit to him. 
not to resist him, not to push back, not to not to rebel against him. And man, I, I know you know this, but let me state the obvious. Part of the process of sanctification is learning and understanding what the Lordship of Jesus really means. Lord Jesus isn't a fair weather friend. He's not a deistic God who every now and then he shows up or he, he creates everything then leaves. That's not God. And so James is saying the way back to God is start with step one. Submit to the Lord. Come under his authority. He's the Lord. And the obvious truth there is even if you don't acknowledge him as Lord, he's still the Lord. And for you and me, the idea of submission is coming again under his authority. That's the first step of the way back. Now, the second step, I kind of compared it to the flip side of the, of the same coin, is resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Again, that's another military term. Stand, the, the idea is take a stand against the devil, and the promises, he will flee. And so... <clears throat> There are a number of names, actually quite a few, really, a number of names for Satan, the evil one in the scripture, quite a few. Satan means adversary. Devil, which is how he's named here, actually means the slanderer, the one who slanders. And so as he slanders us and tempts us and, and, and does everything he can to get us off the track, our position is to stand. Stand against the devil. And I know we mentioned this last week. <clears throat> Jim, on, that, on that point, when you, uh, you use that word so slander, that's the devil making false statements that will mislead you, get you off the track, and, and not allow your growth to occur if you are buying into this, the slanderous statements. Yes, Satan has a two-part strategy. Number one, to slander God, but also to slander us. And so as the devil, as the devil's engaged in that deceptive, deceiving, manipulative slandering to get us to buy this lie, he is attacking the Lord and he's attacking us. Look at those two together. Both are military terms. To submit to the Lord involves necessarily standing against Satan, that those two go together. And um, we've talked about this in so many different ways over the years. I personally believe, and I've taught this, and I've given a lot of pastoral counseling in this area, you and I need to have a strategy for holiness. We need to have a strategy how we're going to do these two things. This doesn't just happen. And so you have to decide beforehand, if this happens, what am I going to do? If this comes across my path, what am I going to do? How am I going to respond to this? And we learn this as we walk with the Lord. We learn this. That's why all, James, the book of James, of the verbs in the book of James, half of the verbs are commands. So that tells you something. If half of the verbs in the book of James are commands, that means you and I are to be actively Pursuing this lifestyle. It isn't something that just happens by osmosis or we sit in a rocking chair and all of a sudden we're holy. Positionally we are, but practically we're learning what that means. And so James, the way back to the Lord begins with a fundamental step. 
Submit to him and resist the evil one. Those two go together. You can't do one without the other. And obviously submitting to the Lord is step one. Now, we, we got through that. I hurried through it last week, so I wanted to start and review it again. Are you, are you with me on this? This is foundational. And again, I, I said this three times. I'll say it one more time. This is written to the believer. This is not about salvation. This is about your walk with the Lord as you're being trying to be a double-minded person with one foot in God's kingdom, one foot in the world. You can't do that. At least you can't do it and experience all the blessings that God has, nor exhibiting the fruit of his spirit. So the way back starts with these two, two of the Ten Commands, okay? Then he says the, the third command beginning in, in the next uh, uh, the next sentence, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, I don't think this is hard, but I want to make sure, again, you don't miss the point. This is about fellowship. Draw near to God. This isn't drawing near to God in, in the act of salvation. Again, James is not telling us how to be saved. He's telling us what the justified life looks like. And the justified life is a life that knows how to deal with the disease of worldliness. And so this is about fellowship. It promotes that relationship, restoring the relationship with the Lord Jesus. And so he then goes on, and he will draw near to you. Now, how do I... How do I draw near to God if I have lost fellowship with him? And that's what these next next series of verbs, imperatives, commands are all about. Now, notice the language. It's the language of the Old Testament. See it? Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Now, I banded a bunch of those together. Drawing near to the Lord, restoring that fellowship with him, means dealing with our sin. <clears throat> this is 1 John 1, 9 in action. This is 1 John 1, 9 illustrated. Remember what John does in the first chapter of his little letter, 1 John. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He used the word cleanse, the same word James is using. Again, this is not about salvation. Justification, to use Paul's words, this is about sanctification. This is our walk with the Lord. This is our relationship with the Lord. And you and I, 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 I this has happened to me many, 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 many times in my spiritual life since I came to the Lord in 1972. I've gotten off the track. I've lost the intimate fellowship of the Lord because of what I chose to do in sin. So how do I restore that relationship? James is explaining it to him. Here's the action plan. It's 10 steps. Submit, resist, cleanse. Now, in, in the ancient, well, not ancient, but in, in ancient Israel, in terms of, of their ceremonial law, what would you do? You would offer sacrifice, and then you would cleanse yourself either washing your hands or actually immersing yourself in one of the mikvotes around Jerusalem and go into the temple. But we don't do that because Jesus Christ ended that in his once-for-all sacrifice. So now what do you and I do? First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, what does the word confess mean? Confess in Greek is hamalideo. 
I agree with God about my sin. That's not rocket science. What I just did, Lord, was wrong. I acknowledge that. You just confessed. You just said the same thing God says about your sin. And what James is hitting here, James is hitting at the core of our growth spiritually. We begin to see sin the way God sees sin. That's part of your spiritual growth. And so, therefore, you respond, pure, cleanse your hands, purify your heart. That's that inner cleansing. You, you have the outward, the cleansing, the cleansing of your hands, the purifying of your heart, the outward and the inward. And righteousness to the Lord Jesus is not only the outward practice of righteousness, it's the inward practice of righteousness, dealing with our motivations and our attitudes. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. That's the thesis of the Sermon on the Mount. Your righteousness is to be a righteousness that succeeds, goes way beyond that of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That's what Jesus says. And for a first century Jew to hear that, they were, what? Because they were only interested in the external. The Lord's interested in the internal. And that's what he talks about. Rob, did you have a question? This is an issue that I struggle with. Because good, that shows you're growing. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I remember when you explained <clears throat> right, justification, sanctification, glory. Right. So, of the three of those, the, the process is insane. That's right. And I remember the words in my mouth, but my understanding was okay. This is something God does to you. Mm-hmm. You don't do it yourself, but it's not a spectator sport either. No. You can't just lay there, okay, God. That's right. It doesn't work that way. You have to be actively seeking. That's exactly right. And that's what that's what James is talking about right here. These are action words. These are these are parents. And my favorite summary of, of sanctification is Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Work out your sanctification with fear and trembling, because God has worked within you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. There's two verses. We are active because God's at work. That's not about justification. That's about the process, because you work out, you don't work out your justification. That's by grace through faith plus nothing. So then he's talking about that sanctification process. Am I active? Yes. Am I passionately active? Yes. Am I, am I actively pursuing this? Yes. But in doing that, I mean, this is, this is, this is the way it is. This is the struggle because, and I, I, that's why I humorously said your struggle. I said, good. That, I mean, I do, I mean that. I, I would say that to young guys all the time. And they're struggling. I would say that is really a good thing that you're struggling with us <clears throat> because that is an evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. And you will not reach a level of comfort with this until you deal with that. It makes sense to me that we don't have to be one of the same That's right. Just because it's us and we're not there. That's right. Uh, but, you know, but, uh, I lost my train of thought. Because this is tough stuff. I, I, it, it also makes sense that God is not. He doesn't apply magic to sanctify us. 
we have to reach out for the knowledge he has that we, can have, we can't have without his word, without his uh, action on us. But it is a two, it's a two-way street in the sense that we have to be reaching out. That isn't necessarily a two-way street. But it is. I mean, he, he does, he, we're, we, we are if not obligated and encouraged to pray to him. Maybe we're obligated beyond myself. <clears throat> but but it is something that we have to participate in if if, if he is going to do that job on us. We are, yeah, that's right. That's right. And let's just do a real quick review of all this, then we'll go back to the text. I define sanctification is the Heavenly Father is transforming us into the image of his Son through the Holy Spirit. And that that's that's what sanctification is. But for you and me, we are actively a part of that because it revolves now, it involves now a walk of loving obedience with the Lord. And a walk of loving obedience is every single day, I'm just affirming. But James just says in, <clears throat> in verse 7, I'm submitting myself to the Lord every day. And that's, that's when you think of it, isn't that what Jesus, Jesus says? If you want to be my disciple, that's not about salvation. You want to be my disciple? Take up your cross daily. They're, they're, that's right. This is not about justification, the Lord Jesus. This is about you want to be my disciple? It, you count the cost of being my disciple. And, I, that, and that's all that's scary. No, no, no. Because there's no other way to live this life except in, in loving fellowship, hand in hand with Jesus. I used to tell my kids, if you're not as close to the Lord, you better put your hand tightly back into Jesus' hand and get back walking with him. Because you've broken the handshake. He hasn't. And so that's what James is talking about here. This is so vital to the Christian life. And I am I am disturbed greatly about so many people not really helping Christians understand the difference between justification and sanctification. And if you're struggling with your sin, that's a good thing. Because you the, the Lord is at work in your life and you're beginning to see what my responsibility is in this process. I want to hate sin. It's one of my goals. I want to hate sin as much as God hates sin. I don't want to get as close to sin as I can and still be okay. I want to get as far away from sin as I possibly can. And that requires me evaluating and thinking about everything I do in my life. And it's that strategy because you learn this. A young believer is just getting started. They don't have any idea what's ahead of them. They've experienced the joy and freedom of salvation. And it's 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 soon going to hit them again. I'm going to still be struggling with this crap. Sorry to use that word, but that's exactly what your past life was. How do I get beyond that? The Lord gives you the resources, the Holy Spirit, His Word, one another, the immense privilege of talking to the Lord. Remember what Jesus said: When I go back to the Father, you will have a new dimension of prayer. Now, ask anything, and the Father will give it to you because you're going to be asking in My name. And on and on. That's all the stuff about the resources we now have. And so James is just reminding us that was next verse. Look, wretched, be wretched, or you could translate that grieve. Mourn, weep. Some translations have wail. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You said, wait a minute. 
I thought the Christian life was a life filled with joy. What are those words? Again, grieve or be wretched, mourn, weep, that you're left to, they're all words that identify how we are to see sin. We're seeing sin the way God sees sin, and we are repulsed by it. And I'll give you, you want to you read a psalm that illustrates this perfectly? It's Psalm 51. It's David's penitential psalm after Nathan, the prophet in the, in the king's court, after the prophet points out David, you have sinned against God through what you do with Bathsheba. And then David writes that psalm. And they're the, they're, the, they're the words you see all over the psalm. But then he says, as I do it, then I will be able to teach my people your way. Then I will offer sacrifices in your name. And then I will shepherd your people. But David first had to do with sin. And so this, these, these words, and they're hard. I mean, you read them, it's a good night. Be wretched, mourn, weep, let your head turn in the morning. Your joy to groom. Because that, that's your response to sin. This isn't how you're not going to be like this all the time. This is how you're responding to sin. Sin should grieve us. It should cause us to mourn. But then we get beyond it when we experience the forgiveness and cleansing of the Lord, 1 John 1, 9. And then the last verb is verse 10. It's humble yourself before the Lord. He will exalt you. And it's humility. And talked about that many times. That's not a difficult word for us to, to know. It's just a difficult <laughs> virtue for us to live. But humility is, you know, it's, it's a voluntary, it's a, again, this is an imperative, it's a command, but it's a voluntary act on our part, a voluntary act of dependence. That's how I define humility, a voluntary act of dependence on the Lord, daily, moment by no, moment. By moment. I, I, it, I never quite said to about the way I, I used to say, well, Lord, I got this one. I can handle this one, Lord. I don't really need you, so you know, and I, I'm not so I would directly say that, but I wouldn't pray about it, I wouldn't look to the Lord, I wouldn't think much about it. And then I'd fall into that trap. And that's I can handle this. I can handle it is a statement of pride. Lord, I can't handle it. You have to help me with this. That's a statement of humility. And that's what James is calling us to. And what's the promise? He will exalt you. In God's economy of things. <coughs> In God's economy of things, the way up is down. And Jesus perfectly, that's the whole theme of, of Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus modeled that for us. He instructs the Philippian church there at the beginning of chapter 1 to be humble as a church, get along with each other, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, I want to give you an example of this, and he gives the example of Jesus. And so James, the brother of Jesus, is doing the same thing here without mentioning Jesus. That the key to the process, I'm going to use the words of Paul here, the key to the process of sanctification is humility. It's a life of dependence. I can't handle this, Lord, on my own. Because you know before you came to Christ, you were trying to handle everything on your own, and look where that got you. You come to faith in Christ, you're beginning to learn that dependence on him. So this is a, I've, I've preached on this a, a numerous times over, over, over the years, 
it's a wonderful summary. And I, when I preach, I usually give the title to the message, The Way Back to the Lord. What's the way back? It isn't talking about justification. It's talking about when you, a child of the Lord, you become a child by faith in Jesus Christ, a member of God's family. When you break fellowship with your heavenly Father, what's the way back? Because if you're not as close to the Lord as you used to be, guess who moved? It wasn't Jesus. It was you. So what's the way back? And that's what James is talking about here. It's a marvelous summary. And I'll use the, the theme that Rob's question really reflected. It's a marvelous summary of our role in the process of sanctification. All right? The only problem I it sounds like you get there. From my experience, we're not going to get to the grave. No. And even after 50 years, I'm better. <laughs> You're not there yet. All the information that you get on a daily basis comes in just to distract you. I go to breakfast with a friend of mine, Christian, we are talking about this. Mm. The moment I leave here, there's billboards, there's traffic. Yeah. There's, it, so this is a moment-by-moment, moment, continuous process yeah. that never ends. Maybe on her deathbed, just... <laughs> Yeah. I'm beginning to figure it out then I'm gone. But I've been doing this for 50 years. Yeah. You still struggle every single day. That's a good reminder, Bill, because that's exactly right. This process does not end until we go to be with the Lord. But you your presence here today, Rob's presence here today, that's part of your sanctification. Yeah. Well, I understand better. Yeah. It, it, you, you, and you're, you're right because. It sounds you, like you're going to get you, here. Well, we're in the process, and the process is just that process work. The process doesn't end; it ends when we go to be with the Lord. And yeah, I, I remember uh, in so many different ways, but I, I, I remembered all the things I've read about this over my life, and some of these great saints that I hold high, like Spurgeon and John Wesley and Martin Luther and. Uh, one of my favorite guys, uh, D.K. Chesterton of, of England and stuff. But, you know, all those guys, they're, they're, they're saying exactly what Bill said. I'm still not there yet. Here's Spurgeon. I'm still not there yet. Spurgeon. You know, you would say he made it. No, no, he's still, I'm still not there. I still struggle. And he would list the things he struggled with. One, one time, Chesterton, um, it's pretty apocryphal, but he wrote about it, so it reflects what he believed. One time, the London Times uh, invited people to answer this question. What is wrong with the world? Chesterton wrote back. Dear editor, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. That was just a great answer, because that's exactly right. You, you and I, humility is identifying exactly what I'm in process. Please be patient with me. God is not yet done. I didn't come up with that. That Somebody else came up with that. But that's how we should look. We should be able to frankly say that. Bill, be patient with me because God's not done with me yet. He's almost done with you, but he's not <laughs> done with me. And it's that it's that, yeah, that position of humility to acknowledge that. Because the, one, the, the, one of the real significant dangers in the Christian life is spiritual pride. I reached it. Oh, yeah? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, in the sense that, you know, I've, I've reached entire sanctification. A phrase Wesley came up with. I've reached entire sanctification. No, you haven't. 
There's no such thing as perfectionism. It's still a process. Did you have a... a well, I was saying, we listen to too much to other people out there. The Lord's on this side, what he wants us to do. So many people have said, like, I just want to live together and not marry. I said, well, everybody does that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they're judging their Christianity by what other people do. Okay, well, he does that. He drinks every night. He's going, That's all right, you know. And if, I, if I don't do that or if I do that, he does it. I can get to heaven if I can. But, I mean, we get to that point where we split. Instead of going with Christ, we go with Whoever. That's worldliness. That's yeah. exactly what James is diagnosing here. Yeah, you do not follow the ways of the world. You follow the path of Jesus. And that's almost trite to say that, but that's precisely the point. Well, now, Paul put it in Romans 8, 24 and 25. Who hopes for what he sees? Yeah. That's right. That's right. What I'd like to do for the remaining Apart, I'll never. I thought we that was, that was idealistic. I don't know. I must have been in Never Never Land. But eleven through the end of the chapter of chapter four, James has two additional pieces of device here. Following in your outline, I simply called this the practice of rejecting worldliness. Two things. It's interesting. Of all the things James could choose, he just chooses two things. He's given us the strategy for the way back. And that's what we've just finished. Now he says, there are two other things I want you to do in, 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 in the practice of rejecting wilderness. It's the issue of slander, which comes out of our mouth, and it's the issue of planning. How do you look at the future? So the first thing he does, I've called this the avoidance of slandering. Now I'm, I'm in verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. <clears throat> but if you judge the law, you are not doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? All right. What is he talking about here? What James is addressing here in these few verses, 11 and 12, is is our relationship, a relational piece of advice, a relational practice. And he chooses the word slander, or ESV's translated it, do not speak evil against one another. What is he really getting at? Judging each other. Yes. A judgmental, critical, negative spirit when it comes to other people. Jim, is that the core of Catalaleo? Uh, yes. The, is, is criticism yes. or gossip, judgment, or does it encompass all of those things? Could you dig a little deeper into that? Well, I, I, the actual, it's a great, great question, uh, Russ, and so I'm going to get a little deeper here. According to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, because I spent a lot of time studying this term, that term means speaking evil against, slandering, judging, with this intent to build myself up. 
I am going to say something about you that is judgmental and critical about you so that when I am compared to you, I'm going to look better. You with me? So I'm going to say something about Ed that we will perceive as slanderous, as speaking evil, as hurtful against him, so that as I put him down, I'm exalting myself. That's the idea of this term. So when you start to flesh this out, it's I am being I am being critical and judgmental about you and your actions and how you're living a life. So that when everybody compares you to me, what are they going to conclude? Well, Ekman is so much better than Bill. Obviously, isn't that true? I don't mean that. I'm, that was an example. <laughs> but the idea, the idea of what James is saying gets at the heart of so many Christians and how they talk about one another. And that's why, Rush, you want another way of, that's not totally conclusive or all-inclusive, but gossip would fit this. I mean, in effect, why do people gossip? Did you hear what he or she did? And the whole idea is you reveal that, I don't do that, therefore what's the conclusion? I'm better than he is. Or that I simply have the inside information. I know. I'm building myself up by saying, look what I know, and I'm sharing that with you. There are so yeah, that's right. There are so many nuances to this, but the digger, the, the more you dig into, you say, "Oh, I I really can understand that," because I'm surrounded by it all the time, constantly trying to put other people down to make yourself look better. That's the heart of what James said. What does James say? What does James say about this? You're speaking evil against the law. Now. Remember, this isn't hard, but you got to remember that in the context of the book of James, how does he use the law? Several times he refers to the law as the law of liberty, the royal law. Remember those phrases he uses earlier in the book? What does he mean by that? What's the royal law? Love. Loving each other. As Christ loved you, so you should love one another. That's the royal law. That's the royal law. Jesus Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount that the entire law is suspended from love the Lord with with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your brother, your neighbors, yourself. He says the whole law is suspended on those two things. So when James is saying you're speaking against the law, he doesn't mean the Mosaic law in the context of the book. He means the royal law of Jesus which he speaks about, he, James, speaks about earlier in chapter 2, verse 8. And so it's, it's a profound challenge to judgment, have a judgmental, critical spirit, to put people down, to gospel about people with the intent of exalting yourself, violates the royal law of a king. And he says, if you judge that law, you're not a doer of the law, you're a judge. But there's only one lawgiver and one judge. Who's that? God, the Lord Jesus, be specific. And he's able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your name? And so it, when you start to dig into these two eleven verses, you, you step back. Well, duh. The practice of avoiding worldliness starts with how I look at my brothers and sisters. What I say about my brothers and sisters. And that critical, judgmental, negative, gossip-laden spirit 
is devastating in the fellowship of believers. And so we look at that and say, boy, he's spot on there. That that's that's really true. <clears throat> Swindoll has a oh, it's a fantastic little essay on all this. And he gave a piece of advice that I always followed <clears throat> when I was in leadership. And he said, among many, many other things, and so now listen, um, I want to share this in confidence. It's um, it's it's really sensitive, and it ends up being a piece of gospel. And, and Swindoll would say, you want to share this in confidence? You don't mind if I bring one of my other colleagues or two in? Because I want to make sure they hear this. This is obviously something. Where, well, now, now, just a minute, Pastor. I didn't mean that. Well, then why do you want to share it in confidence? And then the second thing he illustrates in this little essay was, did you ever receive an anonymous note? Do you know what's happening to Jim? I got to tell you, but I'm going to leave it. You know what, Swindolf? He tears it up. He never looks at it. When I was in leadership, I got many anonymous anonymous notes. Today, I guess you could maybe send it, but you can't send an anonymous email for the most part. But you can get a lot of anonymous notes. If I had an anonymous note, I would not. I would not look at it. I didn't want that in my mind. If that person did not have the courage and integrity to put their name to this, I don't need to know what they're trying to tell me. If they're not going to come to me and sit down and talk to me personally, or they're not going to send me a letter and sign their name to it with the invitation to get back to me, I do not honor something like that. So I tear up anonymous notes. I don't even, I, if I know it's anonymous, I won't even read it. I learned that from Chuck Swindoll. It's not something I came up with. This is what James is talking about here. Worldliness, an evidence of worldliness, is acting just like the world does when it comes to other people. I have something juicy I want to tell you. No, I don't want to hear it. <clears throat> I'm going to write you a note, but I'm not going to stop then. I'm not going to read it. So the second thing James addresses in verse 13 through 17, I called this, it's in your notes there, but avoid presumptuous planning. This is really interesting. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there or trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting. So it's really, I, I love this because of all the things James could have brought up, he chooses to bring this up. Presumptuous planning. Is he condemning planning? Is he saying we shouldn't plan? No, that's not what he's saying. Is he saying you don't map out a strategic plan and vision of what you're going to do in the next five years? That's not what he's saying. He's saying plan, but say, if the Lord wills. So what are you acknowledging? You're acknowledging two things. Number one, you're acknowledging his sovereignty. And number two, you're acknowledging that he has the right to interrupt your plans. Because he is providential and superintending all the events of life. So you're just acknowledging that. 
And so as the Bible, especially the Proverbs, talk a lot about the virtue of planning. Don't stop planning. But as you plan, acknowledge his sovereignty. Acknowledging the reality of his providence. And just say, if the Lord wills. And my wife, I mean, I all my my wife says this all the time. Everything she's doing, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, if the Lord wills. And so I'm saying now, tomorrow, honey, we're Tomorrow, honey, I, I want to just make this. Tomorrow, I want to transplant. You've been telling me to transplant this as one of the honeydew lists. Tomorrow, honey, I'm going to transplant this flower back for you. Then she will add, if the Lord wills. No, honey, you don't have to say that. You know, and I, I'm kidding. I learned long ago, don't say that. I said, yeah, honey, that's right. But it's just she's incorporating into her vocabulary what James is just saying here. Because worldliness is, remember, Last, the last virtue of humility. Worldliness is arrogance. I can handle it. Worldliness is I don't need God. Worldliness is I've got control over this. The sanctification process is acknowledging and practicing the sovereignty of the Lord in your life. Do I plan? Yes. Do I strategize? Yes. But... One, I acknowledge God's sovereignty, and two, I acknowledge that he has the right to interrupt my plans because he knows what's best. I don't know the future, but he does. That's right. That's right. He had that strategic plan, the second missionary journey, of what he was going to do. Who interrupted that plan? The Holy Spirit of God. And then Paul said, well, no, Lord, I'm still going to Asia. No, he didn't. He said, okay. So the Lord, the vision at night, come over to Troas, or come over to Philippi. So they go over and the gospel starts into Europe. So the, the idea, the idea of this section, verses 13 through 17, is advice to not be self-assertive, not be self-confident, and not be self-centered in our planning. Be God-centered. Not self-assertive, not self-confident, not self-centered, but be God-centered. You still plan, you still strategize, you still envision the future, but you say, Lord, if you will, this is what I'm going to do. Because I don't know how you guys were, a number of you are retired too, but I don't know how you, I, I would have plans and I, you know, I'd lay out my plans for the day. I, I almost every single day, it never followed exactly what I planned. And, and that's just, you know, it's frustrating, but it's that if God is in control, he has the right to interrupt my plan because he knows what's best for me. It's a submission to that. Go back to the 10 steps, submit, resist, et cetera. That's hard because you, you, you're pretty sure you know how to do this better than God does. And he interrupts you and say, well, well, I understand this. Okay, it's all right. Let's look at one last verse in verse 17. Most expositors understand verse 17 as a conclusion to the whole chapter. Not just a conclusion about planning, but a conclusion to the whole chapter. So... <clears throat> Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. That, that's getting 
It's getting at the heart of that disease called worldliness. Whoever knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, that's sin. All right. We are going to start chapter 5. We are not going to finish it because we only have about nine minutes. But we are going to start it. Next week, we're going to finish chapter 5. You may not ask any questions. You can't interrupt me. I'm just just kidding. But uh, I I hope, I think we can. If we don't, it'll be all right. Now, any questions? You all with me? I outlined it this way. There are three remaining topics. Actually, there are four remaining topics. (coughs) Verses 1 through 6, I decided to label this the rejection of injustice. This is a theme that James comes up with a lot in his book, and you've seen it. But I want you to observe something. Would you you look at verse 1? If you go back and look at each one of the segments, each one of the paragraphs through the book of James, there's something missing in verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep how for your miseries. What's missing? Adolfoy, brothers and sisters, that's what's missing. If you go back and look through each major paragraph segment, we start the new topic. I mean, look down at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters. That's missing in verse 1. So because Adafoy is missing, brothers and sisters is usually how that's translated, because that's missing, many expositors believe that in these six verses, James is addressing unbelievers. That he's talking to unbelievers who have attained and are using their wealth to exploit the poor. Something the Old Testament has a lot to say about. One would think, for example, about the book of Amos, one of the minor prophets. But, and I, I would go along with that observation. It seems rather critical that James leaves out that term that you see throughout the book, which breaks off the different paragraphs of what he addresses. So because there's no, come now, you rich brothers. That's not there. It's just you rich. So probably James is addressing the wealthy who have attained their wealth and continue to build their wealth by exploiting the poor. Now, God does not look with favor upon that. Again, I refer you to a number of the minor prophets, especially one of my favorites, the book of Amos. So look at what he says. Come now, you rich. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl. For the miseries that are coming upon you. What what do you think he means by miseries? The miseries that are coming upon you. Judgment. James is saying, uh, because he's going to explain in the remaining couple of verses down through verse 6, he's going to explain 
the situation and condition of the rich. They're living their lives as if there's no God. They're living their lives as if there's no accountability to God. They're living their lives as if they're not answerable to God. James says, you should weep and howl. That's ESV's chosen to translate that how. That's that's good. Some translations have it wail. But weep and howl. Why? Because of the miseries that are coming upon you. <clears throat> Your riches, now these oh, impress you here. The verbs in verse 2 are prophetic perfect. Aren't you glad I told you that? Well, correctly, it should be translated your riches will have rotted, your garments will have been eaten by moss, your gold and silver will have been corroded, and that corrosion will be the evidence against you. In other words, James is saying here what verse 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 do is they provide the evidence for the judgment of God. Are you with me? Do you understand what he's doing here? When that judgment comes, it will be just. When that judgment comes, God will present the evidence, so to speak, to the courtroom of your guilt and accountability for him. So what does he say? This will be the evidence against you. Eat your flesh. Here, here it is. You have laid up treasure in the last days. The wages of laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in or for the day of slaughter. You've condemned, you've murdered the righteous person, the innocent. He does not resist you. What James is saying, this is, I, this is where I think expositors are correct here. These are written, these verses are written to unbelieving people who are wealthy and have attained their wealth and continue to become wealthy by exploiting the poor. So James is saying, there's coming a day when you will be called to account. There's coming a day when you'll be called to account. And the evidence God is presenting is what is in verse 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Four pieces of evidence. I don't think I, none of this is hard to understand. I mean, none of this is difficult. But it matters to God how those who are wealthy attain their wealth. Does that sentence make sense? God, you will, you honestly, you will seek, I believe, in vain to see anything in the Bible that condemns wealth per se. It is not a sin to be rich or wealthy. What is important to God, you know, two things. Two things are important to God. One is how did you obtain that wealth? 
Number two, are you stewarding that wealth well? That's what's important to God. Because if God allows you to earn you know, X number of dollars or acquire this property, whatever it is, he is trusting you with that. The word in the Bible is oikonomeia, stewardship. He trusts that to you. But because he trusts that to you, it's of concern to him how you manage that. And you look at the parables of Jesus, number of parables of Jesus about stewards and so on, because that's important to the Lord. If he trusts you with a piece of property, because he's given it to you, yes, you acquired it, you bought it, you took out a mortgage or whatever, you got it, financed or whatever, but you're now, to God, you're accountable. It matters to him how your steward thinks. James is saying here, you who are wealthy have attained your wealth in unjust means. You are accountable and answerable to the Lord. And it will be in a court, in effect, and he will present the evidence. Now, if they're unbelievers, that court will be the great white throne. And the evidence will be, the books will be open, and God's going to present the evidence. Here's how you've chosen to live your life. All your life you have chosen to reject me. Reject everything I've done for you. Therefore, depart from me. I never knew you. <clears throat> I'm using the words of Jesus from Matthew 7. So to, to me, this, this passage, again, I, if you look at each one, it's not hard to understand what he's saying. Each one of those individual pieces of evidence, this is the evidence that God will use. This is how you've chosen to live your life. This is how you've chosen to acquire your wealth. This is how you've chosen to, to en enrich yourselves. You're answerable. They have accountability kind. And that is really important. And it, it's, it's important for, the, for the, the believer looking at people like that. It's important for the poor who have been exploited. And they look at that. Will God never call them to account? Yes, he will. And you know, one of the most important things to read Albert Rabenthal has written a book on this. He called it Slave Religion. One of the most important aspects of the Protestant revival that occurred among the slaves in the pre-Civil War South was they had the view, Jesus will make all of this correct when he comes back. Jesus will take care of all the oppression of my master as he raped my daughter over and over again. Jesus will take care of that. As he beat me and had big welts and then scars. You've seen those photographs of slaves. Those huge scars on their back. Jesus, Jesus, this is what they, they used to say. Jesus will make all things right. That's James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. He will make all things right. That's what James is saying. You who are wealthy and have gained your wealth through exploitation, if you do not repent of that, there's a day of accountability. Now, in the Greco-Roman world, particularly, particularly the Jewish Christians who were dispersed, they were the ones being exploited. And that's why the very next verse, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now, I'm out of time, but that's where we'll start next week. Because in verse 7 and following, James now addresses those who have been exploited by those who are wealthy and have not repented. What's his counsel? Be patient. 
And you see some of that future-oriented perspective uh, in the American slaves in what we, I don't know if we could call it that anymore, but what used to be called the Negro spirituals, the, the, the singing. I was a part of slave religion. Come now, sweet chariot, calling me home. Remember those? I don't know if you probably never took time to look into those and examine those, but they're wonderful, marvelous illustrations of how in slave religion, their future-oriented perspective, the Lord Jesus is going to take care of all And it's when he comes back that everything will be made right. That's the perspective we should have anyway. But anyway, I wanted to get through that. Okay, are you with me? Next week we finish James. And introduce some of your cynical about that. Oh, yeah? You are prohibited from preventing me from finishing James. Take bets on that. Yeah. All right, let me pray here. Father, thank you. I love verses 7 through 10, particularly, Lord, uh, the way back. If we've found ourselves not as close to you as we used to be, guess who moved? Uh, Lord, often in our walk with you, we let go of your hand and go back into a lifestyle of sin. Lord, the way back is submit to you, resist the devil. Have that perspective and viewpoint of sin that you have and reassert our humility, our dependence on you. Lord, we can't do this life on our own. You've given us the Holy Spirit. You've given us your word. You've given us one another. You've given us the high privilege of prayer and talking to you. And Lord, help us to use all those resources to walk in loving obedience with you. That's the only way to live the only way to find the abundance and refreshment and renewal day by day. Lord, we realize that we're never going to completely achieve the goal. We're growing. We look back and thank you, Lord, that we're not what we used to be. We're not quite what we will be, but thank the Lord that we're not what we used to be. And that's that great statement by John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. Lord, that's that's our perspective on our lives. Lord, we want to walk in fellowship with you, our hands tightly in yours, so that we are careful in how we talk about others. We're always acknowledging our plans for the future, whether it's today, this afternoon, or two years from now. If the Lord wills, if the Lord wills. That's a reflection of our humility. Help us to be men and women of faith who love you, walk with you in obedience, and seek to represent you in this very dark world, for that's our role right now. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next week.